Philippians, the wonderfully named Isa. The conference in which we are all participating is truly unprecedented. We are honored to know the participation of over 100 scholars representing 90 or more institutions of higher learning, as well as several representatives of government entities. There are residents of 16 countries here, including from diverse places such as Germany, Venezuela, Burkina Faso, and Texas. <laughs> In fact, last week when we were reviewing the scope of the conference and the fact that it features countless speakers packed into a three-day schedule, Charles Small looked at me and said, you know, it's kind of the Woodstock of anti-Semitism. <laughs> so we, we intend to have adequate bathrooms and to hope we not run out of food. Our hope is that this is the first of many such conferences and that the Yale Initiative is followed by other educational institutions creating similar organizations. The pervasive and persistent nature of anti-Semitism is one of the most significant human rights issues that we can address. For by understanding it, we can develop more effective methods identifying and addressing other forms of bias. And while the presentations are truly amazing, as today showed, I personally think that perhaps the major benefit of this conference is in settings like this one. It's the opportunity for scholars in this field to meet other colleagues with whom they don't get a chance to interface with that often and to share thoughts and ideas and, and to create relationships so that when this conference is over until we meet again next year, there can be a more cohesive effort among our community to work on the problems that we're confronting. And so, on behalf of the Board of Governors of ESA, thank you for participating in this conference and advancing our work in the field of studying anti-Semitism. Good evening.
that is very important and it's gratifying to see and for my colleagues here at Yale to welcome you here and to see the energy and to see the response of so many people from literally all over the world to, uh, to our call for papers um, has been amazing and I, I thank you very much for coming. About six months ago, a colleague of mine uh, on our board of trustees said to me that it may be a good idea to have a conference and that this conference will put YISA and put the study of anti-Semitism on the map. And to be honest, I didn't quite believe it. But he insisted that if you do it well, if you do it right, that the response uh, will come. And I am extraordinarily grateful not only for the, for the support, but for the, the wisdom and the advice that Mr. Rose, Mr. Daniel Rose was here. Um, He was correct, and I appreciate your, your assistance in, the, in this conference. And I'd also like to thank other members of the Board of Trustees who are here this evening. Uh, Mark Rosenblatt is here. Just in front of you. Mr. Hornstein. Erwin Hoffberg is here in front of And David Messer, who who actually came here is quite ill and he came uh, to give greetings from, from quite far just to uh, be here even though he wasn't feeling well, so I'm grateful. <laughs> and it's their guidance, not only their support, financial support, which is crucial, but their wisdom, their business know-how, their uh, knowledge of the university system that has really helped tremendously to put ESA uh, on the map, so I'm really grateful to their help. Um, I'd also like to say uh, I'm very grateful for the other uh, research centers who are represented here. Alvin Rosenfeld from Indiana, who's in the process of starting his center. Dina Parat from the Stephen Roth Institute. Catherine Chatterley, who's the head of the Canadian Research Center on Antisemitism. And Ken Marcus is here from the Institute of Jewish and Community Research. I welcome them. And yesterday we had a they, as well as other members of the International Association for the Study of Antisemitism, had our first meeting, which was productive. I'd like to thank all the members uh, of that council for being and coming early on Sunday. We had a meeting that actually lasted more than seven hours which was amazing, but it was a wonderful discussion, and I think we really uh, went ahead. And I'm actually, I'm quite sorry. I, I, just, I just remembered that I didn't mention David Feldman from the new center at Burbeck College at the University of London. David's here as well. And he attended the meeting as well uh, last night. And we're really in the process of launching a professional association, and thanks to the support of the scholars that came here, I really think we're on a, we're really starting to, to do something productive, to put the study of anti-Semitism on the map, and to support scholars, to help scholars network, uh, to help scholars publish, to empower scholars to confront uh, the issues of the day. And as we saw just from today's sessions, and there's two more days to come, that the issues are very serious. And uh, we need to work together, we need to support each other, we have to encourage each other, that the times as we know, as, as so many experts in this room, I don't have to tell you, and 
and after today we know that the issues are important and this is really uh, an historic moment. And as I said earlier this morning, when Elie Wiesel spoke at, at Yale a couple of years ago, and he was speaking about the possibility of another genocide against six million Jews, and he said, you know, that the thing that really bothers him is the silence. And perhaps here, perhaps, uh, that we can take the responsibility of scholars, of people who are aware. Once you become aware, once you become conscious of the issues of the day, we have an obligation and a responsibility to shed light where there's darkness, to take a stand and to be brave. And sometimes the committees won't like what we're doing and our colleagues won't like what we're doing, but we really need to pursue truth and to even be uncomfortable because there's other people that are even more uncomfortable than us in the ivory tower. And in Jewish culture and Jewish thought, one sin uh, that a Jew can do is to separate themselves from their community. Intellectuals, scholars, Jews and non-Jews, if we separate ourselves from truth, if we separate ourselves from the from the challenges of the day, in a sense, we separate ourselves from our responsibility. And we have to encourage each other and work together to, to push against this hatred, this darkness, which is uh, unfortunately uh, facing us once again in our lifetime. It was 1947 in Tel Aviv. It was a hot summer night. And the governor of, of the of Palestine, of the British mandated Palestine, called a meeting of all the leaders of the Zionist movement in Tel Aviv. And Ben Gurion was there, and all the British uh, <coughs> members of the, of the, of the government, of the, men, of the mandate government, were present. And it was a very fancy dinner in British style, in English style. And there was a head table, and at the head table, David Ben Gurion was there, and the leaders of the Zionist movement, the governor, and the leaders of the British military were present. And it was a hot summer night, and it was before air conditioning, and it was quite warm. And David Ben-Gurion at the head table decided he was a very informal person, as many Israelis were in those days. And he decided to take his top hat off and undo his bow tie, and he took his jacket off, and he rolled up his sleeves and undid his uh, collar, put the jacket on the back of his chair, and uh, the proceedings continued. And the governor was furious, and he wrote, he scribbled a note, and gave it to his aide, and the aide brought it to Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion opened the letter, and the governor said that this is a British English evening, and you're insulting his majesty, and put your tie and your jacket and your top hat on immediately. So Ben-Gurion wrote back, you know, very casually, it's okay, Churchill said it's fine. <laughs> so when the governor read the notes, he became very upset, furious, red in the face, and he was shaking. And at the end of dinner, he made a beeline to Ben-Gurion, and he said, what do you mean that Churchill said it's okay, and how dare you, he consulted the, his majesty. So Ben-Gurion said, you know, last year the Zionist leaders went to 10 Downing Street in London, and we met the Prime Minister and his cabinet, and in the meeting it was very unseasonably, unseasonably warm in uh, London, so I started to take off my jacket, and I rolled up my sleeve, and, uh, undid my tie, and Churchill turned to me and he said, I don't give a damn what you do in Palestine, but here you put your tie.
So, 65 years later, I'd like to welcome everybody to Yale. Um, and I think this is the time the leaders of the Zionist movement and the people struggling for Jewish self-determination were using chutzpah and ingenuity and creativity and limited resources and made many sacrifices to not only achieve independence for Israel, but to sustain the struggle for maintaining its independence and to develop Israel into a strong, vibrant, cosmopolitan, multicultural democracy. And we can learn from that generation to, to be strong and to be creative. Today, as I spoke earlier and mentioned briefly, we're facing an upsurge of anti-Semitism. And in a sense, it's very much connected to, I believe, the whole notion and the processes associated with globalization. The neoliberal regime of economics reforms have weakened the state or, or limited state intervention around the world. And through these processes, hopefully the, the belief was to, through democratic principles and the free market system, that more people would have a stake in the future and their lives, the goods and services they had access to, the resources they had access to, would improve. But we know through studies that there's a tremendous group of people, particularly in the so-called third world, even though we live in one world, the so-called third world, there's more and more marginalized people. And this vacuum that's been created by the free market system and the weakening of the state has been happily filled in the case of many societies, too many societies, the rise of radical Islamism, the rise of radical Islam, the sort of reactionary movement that not only wants to destroy the state because they perceive it as a vestige of, of, of Western influence, of Western colonialism and imperialism that needs to be removed as they try to impose Sharia law, as they try to impose a caliphate. And in this system, we've heard today from so many experts, I don't, I don't want to repeat what was been said, but through this system of Sharia law and a very narrow form of Islamic law that's being imposed by, in places like Iran by the revolutionary regime of Iran and exported to places like Gaza and, and Lebanon, southern Lebanon, now we can probably even say Lebanon, perhaps all of Lebanon is now under the influence or control of Hezbollah. That this revolution is being spread to places like Turkey, we heard a very important uh, lecture this evening, uh, this morning rather, about Turkey, and how this sort of radical, narrow form of Islam is being imposed on more and more societies. And as this form of anti-Semitism is being, sorry, this, this form of radical Islam is being imposed, anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, the use of the protocols of the elders of Zion, the most pernicious form of anti-Semitism, is being used in the most pernicious way, reminiscent of other dictatorships and other reactionary regimes that swept to power. It's a social movement that uses genocidal anti-Semitism, and I'm using my word carefully here, genocidal anti-Semitism, to fuel its support from marginalized, in many cases, desperate people. And that this is gaining strength, and the export of this most pernicious form of anti-Semitism the export of the protocols of the elders of Zion. We know we'll hear about Venezuela and even in West Africa that Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas and other parts of the social movement are exporting 
this genocidal anti-Semitism, portraying Jews in the most horrific sense, as Professor Nilsson and others showed us today. But this anti-Semitism, as Ruth Weiss said, is, is pointing out the Jews while they're taking away the rights and privileges of their fellow citizens. It's Muslims who are the greatest victims of radical Islam. They're on the front line. Women are being segregated off from society. Today in Gaza, if a woman wants to shop, they have to be chaperoned with a member, a male member of their family. And yet, we in the West, we in the academy, are silent in, in the face of this genocidal anti-Semitism, this sexism, homophobia to the level where people are actually being executed for being gay. When Ahmadinejad was at Columbia University a few years ago, and he said that there were no gay people in Iran, the audience, one of the most sophisticated audiences in the United States, people from the Middle East Studies Department at Columbia University, that audience laughed at Ahmadinejad. They laughed because they didn't understand what he meant. When Ahmadinejad said there are no gay people in Iran, he meant it. He's not a stupid man. He's a clever, maybe immoral, unethical man, but he's clever. And he meant it. Because if you're gay in Iran and you're discovered to be gay, you're executed. The Baha'i people of Iran, as you will hear from Wahid, who's around here, and he'll speak, I believe, on Wednesday, have been labeled a, a Zionist religion, spying for the state of Israel. Cultural pluralism is being thrown out the window. Religious pluralism is being thrown out the window. Basic notions of citizenship, whether we're right-wing or left-wing, liberal, conservative, I'm sure that everybody in this room would agree that everybody has the right to be equal under one legal system, regardless of our political orientation, regardless of our ethnicity, our race, our religion. And yet, the social movement is completely flying in the face of these basic principles. And we in the West, and we at Yale, at the Ivy Leagues, at Oxford, at Sorbonne, all over the world, we remain silent in the face of this reactionary social movement. And we know through history that anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but it never ends with Jews. This is a human rights issue. This is an issue that needs to be understood from an interdisciplinary background, from different methodological approaches, from different political and ideological approaches. We have to support each other, even if we have different perceptions and different views of what the problems are and what the causes are. We have to work together and, and shed light where there is darkness. The Iranian regime has just passed another threshold. They're now putting plutonium into the Bashir nuclear reactor. And Washington is silent. The European Union is silent. Intellectuals are silent. Human rights activists are silent. And it's the silence that Elie Wiesel felt most troubling, and I think we in this room probably agree. I had the privilege of meeting Natan Sharansky not too long ago in Herzliya at a conference. And in 1984, I traveled to, to Moscow and Leningrad in those days with a friend of mine through the Hillel Student Society. Um, and we met some refuseniks. And we met his mother and his brother while he was in solitary confinement in a, in a prison, in a gulag. And I met him in, in Herzliya and we were speaking. And he was, he was telling me that 
when he was in solitary confinement and he was on a hunger strike, and his darkest hour, he knew he would be free and he knew that he would live in Jerusalem. He knew it. And as he said it, in his words, he knew that he'd be free because it was the students and intellectuals and housewives that were marching in the streets screaming, let my people go. And he, like Elie Wiesel, also said to me, why are the students quiet? Why are the intellectuals quiet? And he also doesn't understand. I was at a conference in Israel with a few colleagues that were there as well. It was put on by Pugwash, it's about 14 or 15 months ago. And it was on a kibbutz, and at this meeting there were people from China, Russia, the European Union, Canada, the United States, and Israel. There were scholars like me in the social science and humanities, uh, experts in the Middle East and in social and cultural theory. There were physicists, and there were people from security at the meeting. And everybody at the meeting agreed that Iran was trying to build a bomb. The debate at the, at the meeting was whether Iran would ever use the bomb. The Israelis said that they would never want to be put in that position, and the Chinese on the other extreme were saying that if, if Iran had a bomb, that they would become responsible citizens of this exclusive club. And then the debate was, how long would it take? The Israelis at the time were saying about two years, and the Chinese were on the other extreme saying eight to 10 years. And as we go 14, 15 months later, more and more thresholds are being crossed, and more and more we remain silent in the academy. And I think it's our responsibility, given the fact that unlike us in the West, the Iranian revolutionary regime is honest. They're straightforward, they're clear. Their religion, or their view of religion, their ideology, their cultural policies, social policies, political policies, and their military policies are clear. Their speeches in their mosque, their speeches to the public, they are clear what they want to do. Their allies are clear. They say it all the time, as we heard today, throughout the day in the sessions. And yet we in the West remain silent, and even worse, we in the academy, for people who are engaging in the study of contemporary anti-Semitism, we are actually, in some cases, perceived as the enemy. Because we are put into pigeonholes. We are put into holes, pigeonholes that we are somehow reactionary. Somehow, we are the ones who are Islamophobic. Somehow, we are the neoconservatives that want to uh, create war and havoc. And it's this environment, I don't know what it's like in other countries, I know in certain parts of Europe it's more difficult than here, and etc. But it's not a popular view, or popular position, to be dealing with issues of anti-Semitism in the academy. And this is why I call upon you, despite political difference or ideological difference, or the debates that we have among ourselves, which sometimes are intense, that regardless of where we stand, the fact is that the anti-Semites, in my view, are marching forward. And we have to make some noise. We have to do high caliber scholarship and let it be known. We have to take a stand against those who want to silence us or put us in a pigeonhole to say that somehow we're reactionary for dealing with these issues. So, I call upon you today as scholars, as people who search for the truth, as people who are here to shed light where there is darkness, 
to push forward, even if you become unpopular, even if you get into trouble in certain committees, to push forward. And the, the you know, one thing that just comes to mind is Judith Butler, a Yale graduate, a person who speaks with pride about her Orthodox Jewish background, a woman who speaks openly and with pride that she's gay, a woman on the cutting edge who, uh, of social theory and philosophy, who is almost, I think I'd say, an icon in certain parts of Europe, one of the most important political thinkers, social thinkers of our time, a professor at Berkeley, California. She is going around saying that Hezbollah and Hamas should be embraced as part of the progressive left. And she goes unchallenged by us. And she must be challenged. And, I, and, I, and she has to be called for these things which are just not accurate. I was recently at the Tate Gallery in London. There was a conference on in, engaging, uh, sorry, it was about Marxist philosophy, the future of Marxist philosophy in the United Kingdom. And I went there as an invited guest. I know the curator, we studied together in England. I was invited. And I know in our circles, sometimes uh, those of us who study anti-Semitism, we speak about the red-green alliance. We speak about how the radical left and the radical Islamic movement work together. And in the back of my mind, I kind of come from the left, I'm a critical social theorist, that's my background, and there's a part of me that was thinking, you know, we're kind of talking amongst ourselves and that we're probably exaggerating a little bit, uh, what, you know. So here I was in the Tate Gallery, people like Terry Eagleton, leading political philosophers, serious scholars, people in their 60s and 70s who've written books, Marxist thinkers, serious thinkers from Oxford, Cambridge, University of London, the University of Birmingham, serious thinkers. And the whole theme of the, of the evening was how, as Marxists, do we engage radical Islam? And they were saying they were opposed to American and Western hegemony, they're opposed to colonialism, they're opposed to capitalism, so, so are radical Islamists, and that they can work together. I think my jaw was on the floor for most of the time. And I, said, I went for dinner with them, and I was sitting next to a scholar who I won't mention her name. She's a very serious uh, environmentalist, Marxist, feminist philosopher from a prominent university. And I was sitting next to her, and she gave this uh, rousing speech during the session, about 600 people in the Tate Gallery. And I turned to her and I said, you know, if I was an Anglo-Saxon Protestant professor from Oxford, and I was 75 years old, and I turned to you, and I said, you know, as a woman, you have no right to be out at night. And as a woman, you have no right to have a career. And you should go home. What would you think of me? Because obviously, this is what radical Islamists would say to a woman uh, in, in many places, certainly in places like Gaza, and southern Lebanon, and the like. And she turned to me, and she said, well, based on your accent, you're American. You must be a Bush supporter, neoconservative. <laughs> and this was her her response. And I told her, you know, as a serious philosopher and thinker, don't you think that you have a better response than just calling me a name? <coughs> anyway, that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> so, this is our challenge. I think we all have to work together, support each other, help each other, and uh, hopefully there'll be more conferences. We can work together, publish together, empower each other. 
and I wish you good fortune in your work. Enjoy the rest of the conference, and uh, look forward to working with all of you in the near future. So I have one quick announcement to make before I introduce Erwin Kotler. Um, very briefly, my parents drove here from Montreal, <laughs> which is very kind of them. And I just want to wish them a Mazel Tov in the mud. A week from now, they're celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Title 
uh, Robert Richards' most recent book, uh, Lethal Obsession from Antiquity uh, to the Present Day. But the global resurgence of anti-Semitism, particularly in the last decade, and that was a, a hallmark of the presentations today. Indeed, if, if the Holocaust is the paradigm, as it is sometimes uh, put, of radical evil and genocide, the crime of crimes whose name we should even shudder to mention, then anti-Semitism, as it has been called, is the paradigm of radical hatred. I, I must say that I, I sometimes am uh, uh, uneasy about the use of the word paradigm. I know it's a favorite academic term I use it myself. But it also has a kind of sanitizing effect. When you talk about something being paradigmatic of an evil, then you somehow may forget the very evil uh, that you're talking about as being uh, a paradigmatic expression. And in fact, I'm reminded by this uh, that my father used to counsel me that the struggle against anti-Semitism, as he would put it, was part of the larger struggle for tzedek, 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 for justice, justice, as you, as you pursue. But it was my mother, I think, left a more lasting impression with me when she said to me, you know, if you want to pursue justice, then you have to feel, you have to witness the injustice about you. Otherwise, the pursuit of justice is just an abstract notion. Otherwise, it remains a theoretical construct. And I think the value of this conference, underlying a thesis of, of my remarks today, is we are here in this scholarly community, hopefully will resonate beyond, to bear witness, to feel the injustice, to bear witness, and we have heard in the presentation today, we'll be continuing, to an old, new, escalating, global, sophisticated, virulent, and even lethal anti-Semitism. One which is grounded in classical anti-Semitism, but is distinguishable from it, which first found international juridical expression in the United Nations Zionism as racism resolution, which the late Senator Daniel Moynihan said gave the abomination of anti-Semitism the appearance of international legal sanction. But where here too, it has gone dramatically beyond it. For example, in the laundering of anti-Semitism as part of the struggle against racism, for which Durbin won with metaphor and message. Or the laundering of anti-Semitism under the protective cover of the United Nations invoking the imprimatur of international law, marching under the banner of human rights, positing Israel thereby as the enemy of all that is good and the repository of all that is evil. A new anti-Semitism for which I suggest we almost need a new vocabulary to define it, but which can perhaps best be characterized using a rights-based equality anchored international juridical perspective. In a word, traditional anti-Semitism is a discrimination against, denial of, assault upon, 
the rights of individual Jews and Jewish minorities to live as equal members in whatever society they inhabit. A diaspora-oriented inquiry for which we have developed indicators to identify and monitor this traditional but there is a new anti-Semitism for which we have yet to develop indicators to identify and monitor. A new anti-Semitism which finds expression in the discrimination against, denial of, assault upon the right of Israel and the Jewish people to live as an equal member of the family of nations, of the singling out of Israel for discriminatory differential treatment in the international arena of the right even of Israel and the Jewish people to live. The whole which found expression in its more <coughs> lethal form in the first month of the 20th century, on January 4th, 2000, when the Supreme Leader Khamenei of Iran said that there is no solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict without the annihilation of the Jewish state. Not even the resort to euphemistic, uh, Zionistic uh, metaphor. Without the annihilation of the Jewish state. I suspect that it was this convergence of the overt call for the destruction of Israel, the state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, together with a more sophisticated laundry of anti-Semitism, as I said, under the rubric of all that is good, and Israel posited as the poisoner of the international wealth, as I said some 20 years ago, that a, a world in which human rights has emerged as the new secular religion of our time, then the positing of Israel as the meta-human rights violator of our time, and since then it has become the positing of this criminal apartheid Nazi state as the new human rights violator of our time, in effect, has Israel emerging as the new and antichrist of our time. I suspect that it was this convergence of the two that caused Elie Wiesel to say, not much longer after the statement made by uh, the Iranian leader, which I quoted, to say as follows, and I quote, may I share with you, this is at the beginning of this decade, before everything else we heard about today uh, has occurred and things that we are yet to hear about. Here's our other result. May I share with you the feeling of urgency, if not emergency, that we believe anti-Semitism represents and calls for. I must confess to you, I have not felt this way, the way I feel now, since 1945. I believe that there are reasons for us to be concerned, even afraid. Now is the time, as he put it, to mobilize the efforts of all of humanity, which has in part inspired this conference as well, as well as the founding meeting of the Interparliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism, which brought 125 parliamentarians from some 40 countries to London in February of 2009 adopted the London Declaration and which characterized, if I can use one-liners, anti-Semitism as hatred of Jews and hatred of Israel as a Jewish collectivity. And this dovetailed as well. At the same time, in Europe, 
while Elie Wiesel was speaking, as I've cited, here in the United States, with Per Almark, per Almark the former Deputy Prime Minister of Sweden, writing in Europe at the same time as follows, and I quote, and this is where he himself was observing the complex uh, intersections between the old and new anti-Semitism and the impact of the new on the old. And sort of pithily concluded the intersecting relationship and impacts as follows, quote, compared to most previous anti-Jewish outbreaks, this new anti-Semitism is often less directed against individual Jews. It attacks, as he put it, primarily the collective, the state of Israel. And then such attacks start a chain reaction of assaults on individual Jews and Jewish institutions. In the past, the most dangerous anti-Semites, as Per Almar put it, were those who wanted to make the world Judenrein, free of Jews. Today, and this is at the beginning of this decade that he was saying this, the most dangerous anti-Semites might be those who want to make the world Judenstatron, free of a Jewish state. And so what I would like to do uh, at this point is focus on that particular uh, phenomenon of genocidal anti-Semitism. This is not a term, as Charles himself mentioned when he referred, not a term that uh, we use lightly or easily. And I am in fact extracting from the definition as used in the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, which prohibits in that convention the direct and public incitement to genocide. Simply put, if anti-Semitism is the most enduring of hatreds, and genocide is the most horrific of crimes, then the convergence of this genocidal intent embedded in anti-Semitic ideology is the most toxic of combinations. There are, in effect, three manifestations of this genocidal anti-Semitism. The first is the state-sanctioned, indeed, state-orchestrated genocidal anti-Semitism in Ahmadinejad, Iran, and I use that term to distinguish from the people and publics of Iran or otherwise the targets of massive domestic repression, which we should not ignore in any uh, of uh, this or any discussion with respect uh, to Iran. The second uh, manifestation of genocidal anti-Semitism are the covenants and charters, the policies and platforms of terrorist organizations such as Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Al-Qaeda, and the like. Let there be no mistake about this. These are not just terrorist organizations, though that would be bad enough. They have an objective, which is genocidal, an ideology, which is anti-Semitic, and a purported reach, which is global. Some of it, which was exemplified, and I had more references here, but for reasons of time, I will unduly abbreviate and do this as I go on. Reference in the words of Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah, who said that, quote, if all the Jews were gathered in Israel, it would be easier to kill them all at the same time. I was reminded of this because I don't know how many of you saw yesterday's program, the GPS of Farid Zakari. And at the end of his program, he shows a picture of a synagogue called the Abraham Synagogue. 
says, this synagogue is not a synagogue in North America. It's not a synagogue in Europe. It's a synagogue in Beirut. And it's a synagogue which is being refurbished in Beirut with the support of the Christians and with the support of the Muslims and indeed with the support of Hezbollah. And then there's a quote from an alleged Hezbollah representative that we are not against the Jews, we are against the occupation. I thought it might be useful in that context, uh, and I was reminded of this, of another lesser known, but no less defamatory and incendiary uh, expression by Nasrallah and Hezbollah, where he said, and I quote, if we search the entire world for a person more cowardly, despicable, weak and feeble in psyche, mind, ideology, and religion, we would not find anyone like the Jew. Notice, says Nasrallah, I do not say the Israeli, I say the Jew. The Shiite scholar, Amal Sad Boyare, author of the book Hezbollah, Politics and Religion, argues that such statements, and I quote, provide moral and ideological justification for dehumanizing the Jews. In this view, she added, the Israeli Jew becomes a legitimate target for extermination. This is a Shiite scholar writing a book on Hezbollah, so characterizing their ideology, and continues, and also legitimizes attacks on non-Israeli Jews. One would have hoped that Farid Zakari would have at least balanced the statement that he made, quoting a Hezbollah representative that we are not against the Jews, only against the occupation, with what has been in fact said by Nasrallah, and what in fact has been characterized about uh, Hezbollah by Shiite scholars themselves who have written about it. The third manifestation of this genocidal anti-Semitism, and we were witness uh, to it today, are the religious fatwas or execution writs where the genocidal calls in mosques and in medias are held out, in fact, as being religious obligations, and where Jews and Judaism are characterized as a perfidious enemy of Islam. Here, Israel emerges not only as the collective Jew among the nations, but emerges here as the Salman Rushdie among the nations. But here, the fatwa is not just as abhorrent as it was against one Muslim writer, but the fatwa is against an entire state and people. In a world, Israel is the only state in the, in the world, and the Jewish people, the only people in the world today. And I state this now as an, an empirical proposition, that are the only state and the only people that are the standing targets of state-sanctioned calls for their destruction by religious terrorists and governmental leaders. And all this is accompanied, in terms of what Charles referred to, by kind of indifference, not indulgence, of these incendiary calls, which have morphed into another phenomenon. That not only are Israel and the Jewish people the only standing targets of incitement to genocide, but the only state and the only people that are the targets of standing accusation of themselves engaging 
in a holocaust and genocide of the Palestinian people. An Orwellian inversion, I hate to use that cliche term, but a kind of, I've heard people saying it today, that we live in an upside down world in terms of the Nazification of Israel and the Jews. Accordingly, at this point, what I'd like to do in terms of analyzing Ahmadinejad's Iran as a case study is using it not only as a case study of the manifestations of each of these examples of state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, but also of the moral and juridical inversion that has taken place in the Nazification of the Jew and of Israel in the ideology of radical Islam. Again, another uh, framing uh, theme in uh, today's uh, discussion. And to do so at a time when we meet, in fact, at a unique historical moment that not only, I think, dovetails with the convenings of this conference, but also with the phenomenon of <coughs> genocidal anti-Semitism. As it happens, we meet on the occasion of the 65th anniversary of the United Nations Charter, intended, as it was put, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, but which has been assaulted again and again. On the eve of the 65th anniversary of the adoption by the United Nations the General Assembly of the Prospective Genocide Convention, sometimes referred to as the Never Again Convention, but which has been assaulted again and again. In the aftermath of the 16th anniversary of the unspeakable genocide in Rwanda, where one million Rwandans, mostly ethnic Tutsis and some moderate Hutus, were murdered in less than three months from April to uh, July in 1994. An unspeakable genocide, not only because of the horror of the genocide, but because this genocide was preventable. Nobody can say that we did not know. We knew, but we did not act just as with regard to Darfur. Nobody can say that we <coughs> did not or do not know. We knew and we did not act. And also the double anniversaries of the double entendre of Nuremberg, the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg race laws, the jackboots of Nuremberg, and the 65th anniversary of the Nuremberg principles, the forerunner of international humanitarian law. And so it behooves us on this anniversary of anniversaries to ask ourselves the question, the implications for genocidal anti-Semitism. What is it that we have learned and what is it that we must do? Let me very briefly identify four major lessons in the last 65 years in a series of one-liners. This is an informed audience that does not require any elaboration. The first lesson is the danger of state sanction incitement to genocide. Simply put, that the Holocaust has shown on the genocides that followed in Srebrenica and Rwanda and Darfur occurred not simply because of the machinery of death, but because of state-sanctioned cultures of contempt. It is this teaching of contempt, this demonizing of the other, this is where it all begins. As the Supreme Court of Canada put it in upholding the constitutionality of anti-hate legislation in Canada, and I quote, and it was affirmed by decisions of international criminal tribunals 
performing the Slavian War, that the Holocaust did not begin in the gas chambers. It began with words. These, as the court put it, are the catastrophic effects of racism, the chilling facts of history. The second lesson is the dangers of indifference and inaction in the face of such incitement and atrocity, for which Rwanda and Darfur are case studies. The third is the danger of a culture of impunity. The 20th century was the age of atrocity, it was also the age of impunity. Few of the perpetrators were brought to justice. And so just there must not be any sanction for hate or any refuge for bigotry, so must there not be any sanctuary or haven for these hostis humanis generis, these enemies of humankind. And the fourth lesson is that of la trahison de clair, the betrayal of the elites. Nuremberg crimes were the crimes of the Nuremberg elites. And it is a tragedy that today the elite institution, the repository for the promotion and protection of human rights in our day, which is a law professor I would teach, the jurisprudence of the United Nations Human Rights Council, established for the purposes of promoting and protecting human rights and holding human rights violators to account, where we have a spectacle that in the first 80% of its decisions, one member state is singled out for discriminatory and differential indictment. Call it X, it happens to be Israel. But no less important, that the major human rights violators continue to enjoy exculpatory immunity. No resolutions of condemnation, not against Iran, not against Sudan, not against Syria. And so I say, la trahison declare. And if you look at the character of state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism in Iran, my paper was going to deal with uh, a cluster of dynamics which together constitute a critical mass of genocidal incitement or genocidal indictment. What you really find are the manifestations in using genocidal anti-Semitism in Iran as a case study. What you find are the manifestations, the dynamics of contemporary anti-Semitism. What you find is number one, first, the delegitimization or exclusion of the alien other. That becomes the first uh, dynamic in this phenomenon of uh, delegitimization, Family, which found expression in the words of the Supreme Leader. Now, just quote this one as follows, and I quote, Who are you? Speaking of what is the delegitimized statement of truth. Who are you? A forged government and a false nation. They gathered wicked people from all over the world and made something called the Israeli nation. Is that a nation? All the malevolent and evil Jews have gathered there. In the original, this is not my characterization. Those Jews who went to Israel were malevolent, evil, greedy thieves and murderers. Leading to the second uh, precursor. And that is the dehumanization of Israelis and Jews through the use of epidemiological metaphors reminiscent of Nazi-like dehumanization of the Jews. I make no comparison at all uh, with the Holocaust or any analogy. 
I'm speaking only about the use of epidemiological metaphors. In other words, in the genocide fostering process, these biological euphemisms are not just rhetorical instruments of incitement. Rather, they seek to preclude the intended victims from even being considered human to begin with. Therefore, just as Jews were labeled as vermin by the Nazis, and the Tutsis were labeled as cockroaches in Rwanda, so too have Israelis and Jews been dehumanized and labeled in Iran as filthy germs, savage beasts, black and filthy microbes, a cancerous tumor, a stain of disgrace in the garment of the world of Islam, a stinking corpse, a cancerous bacterium. You get the point. I regret even to have to cite uh, what I did. But you appreciate here the danger of this kind of dehumanizing uh, incitement as part of the precursor uh, to genocide, which lead to a third uh, precursor, and that is the demonization of Israel and the Jew. The Jew is a dangerous, diabolical, devil-like, satanic figure. In a word, and to conclude this third precursor, dehumanization coupled with demonization accomplishes the dual purpose of making the would-be victim appear to be not only less than human or subhuman, but also to appear to be more threatening, more dangerous, thereby providing a warrant for genocide. As when Ahmadinejad and other Iranian leaders and Mayor Litvak would correct today, this pervasive throughout uh, uh, the elite themselves refer to Jews as the true manifestations of Satan and the like. Which brings me to a fourth uh, phenomenon, and this was dealt with by uh, Mayor Litvak today, and I don't want to uh, belabor it, and the phenomenon of Holocaust denial, other to make than to make just two points. That the phenomenon of Holocaust denial, which also in the Iranian uh, version accuses the Jews of fabricating the host of the Holocaust, thereby adding to the demonizing motif, not only talks about the Jews as having fabricated the host of the Holocaust, but then moves inexorably in terms of accusing the Jews of having perpetrated the Holocaust. Now, when there was an anti-Semitism, uh, a Holocaust denial conference that was held in Iran five years ago, there was a measure of outrage. But at the same time, there was no outrage. There's outrage at Holocaust denial, some measure of outrage. But there was no outrage at the ongoing state-sanctioned incitement to genocide for a future Holocaust. Similarly, when Iran just two weeks ago established a Holocaust denial website, there was some modest reaction, mainly in Israel, of outrage to this Holocaust denial website. But generally speaking, no real generalized or universal outrage, nor was there any outrage at all about the fact that this Holocaust denial website actually had more about Holocaust inversion and the Nazification of Israel and the Jew than it had about the denial of the Holocaust, leaving aside entirely the whole question of state sanctioned incitement to genocide, which leads to the fifth precursor, which has come to be known as the false accusation in the mirror, yet another warrant for genocide. Simply put, genocides invoke this in order to convey to their people that if this evil aggressor is not somehow dealt with 
then this will be a danger to all Iranians, indeed to all uh, Muslims. Uh, this was mentioned today in terms of the Istanbul Declaration. We found this narrative where the freedom flotilla is pitted against uh, the aggressive, murderous Israelis. And so you have the false uh, accusation in the mirror as being yet another uh, warrant uh, for framing aggression as self-defense, a lead motif which has been used and advocated by the Nazis and the genocidaires in the Balkans, Rwanda, and Darfur. Brings me now to the next precursor, the sixth one, and with that, very briefly, not only are Israelis and Jews held out as being the enemies of Iran or the enemies of Islam, they are held up as being the enemies of humanity as a whole. There are a whole series of citations which I won't go into. The point is that the struggle against this demonic evil, which is held up to be an enemy of humanity, also increasingly has a kind of religious sanctification to it. In other words, this is the way to bring about the hidden Mahdi, the return of a kind of messianic uh, Islam in order to arrest uh, this uh, assaultive and invasive uh, enemy of humanity. The seventh precursor, and I mentioned it, and I won't go into it, that is the support that Iran provides, and I'll just quote one of them, uh, which I found interesting because it was referred to actually uh, from the podium of the United Nations. So one would have thought that rather than Ahmadinejad be in the docket, he was able to articulate the following, and I quote, but among the Jews there have always been those who killed God's prophets, who opposed justice and righteousness. Throughout history, this religious group has inflicted the most damage on the human rights, while some groups within it engaged in plotting against other nations and ethnic groups to cause cruelty, malice, and wickedness. Historically, there are many accusations against the Jews. For example, it was said that they were the source for such deadly diseases, the plague, and the typhus. This is because the Jews are very filthy people. For a time being, people also said that they poisoned water wells belonging to Christians and thus ended up killing them. Anti-Semitic tropes sanitized somewhat by Ahmadinejad in his talk before the United Nations, but nonetheless, uh, you get the sense of this uh, uh, precursor. And so the question becomes, and with this, I move quickly uh, to a close. What is it that we must do? Let there be no mistake about it. Iran has already committed the crime of incitement to genocide prohibited under the Genocide Convention. Iran is in standing violation of international law prohibitions, not only with respect to the incitement to genocide, but also with respect to the prohibitions on the development of uh, nuclear uh, weapons, also with regard to international uh, terrorism, uh, human rights uh, violations, and uh, the like. And so when we ask the question, what is it that we must do? I find it astonishing that as we meet, blessed, as we meet, not one state party, not one state party, not Canada, not the United States, not any of the countries of the European Union has invoked any 
any of the mandated legal remedies under international law and under the Genocide Convention to bring Ahmadinejad Iran to account. There's not even been, been the modest initiative of simply referring Ahmadinejad's genocidal incitement of the Iranian genocide to the United Nations Security Council for deliberation and prospective accountability. Not one state, and this could be done tomorrow, not one state has initiated before the International Court of Justice an interstate complaint against Iran for its violations of the Genocide Convention, as Iran is also a state party to the Genocide Convention, as it is applied to prohibit this, let alone at the perpetrator. The United Nations Secretary General has not exercised his authority under Article 99 of the UN Charter, nor has anyone asked him to exercise his authority under Article 99 of the UN Charter to refer this matter of genocidal incitement to the UN Security Council for deliberation. I can go on. The point I'm trying to make is that in the face of state-sanctioned genocidal anti-Semitism, with all the historical lessons that we know about it, we are finding the same indifference and inaction in the face of such an insight, in the face of what might be called, in the light of the eight precursors I mentioned to you, in their constitutive sense, a warrant for genocide or genocide foretold. I can tell you that as somebody, when I was Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, prosecuted Rwandans for incitement to genocide, that the critical mass of precursors to genocide in Ahmadinejad's Iran parallels, if not exceeds, the critical mass of precursors in Rwanda, which took them down the road to genocide. The time has come, indeed I would say it is past, but still the time remains to sound the alarm and to call the international community to account with a wake-up call to that international community. For we have learned only too well, and Charles mentioned it, that while it may begin with Jews, it doesn't end with Jews. As the French say, at times such as these, qui s'excuse, s'accuse. That whoever remains indifferent indicts himself or herself. I prefer also to go back to our own sources and say, if not now, when? In And if not us, who? The pursuit of justice, as my parents would put it, demands no less. And the combating of anti-Semitism is a fundamental component of tzedek tzedek and the implementation of a tikkun olam for all. Thank you.
Thank you so much for your tireless efforts and may you continue with strength to strength because we really need you. Thank you so much. I'm just going to end the evening um, by inviting Jim Ponette, the rabbi at Yale University, to make a brief closing. And then I would invite you, this is, it's not an open bar, but there's a bar on the upstairs on the 19th floor. I invite people to perhaps come for some informal discussions and networking. It's on the 19th floor of the hotel. And as Jim Ponette, the rabbi Yale, walks up to the podium, I just wanted to say that it means a lot that Jim is here and will say a few closing remarks in the evening. I know it's late. Um, about five years ago, I went to Jim's office with this crazy idea of bringing uh, a research center to Yale on anti-Semitism. And in his office, he, we started to hash this plan. And uh, he introduced me to the right people and helped me navigate um, Yale, which was a daunting task in those days. And I guess, as they say, the rest is history. So it means a lot that Jim is here to uh, end the proceedings this evening. I, uh, after all we've heard, um, and consistent, uh, consistent with my amazing conversation with Bassam Tibby, who sits over there, um, I should just like to end uh, uh, with uh, uh, the words of the psalmist, uh, Hebrew and English, um, that all that we're doing here tonight and in the course of this conference um, was indeed moved from the darkness that Professor Cutler has described so vividly uh, to the light. And that would be accomplished by these words, um, May the one who will give strength to those of us who have tasks to perform grant us also peace, ease in this world.